Well, good evening. Would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number four? We'll begin in the book of Hebrews this evening. And for the next two Sunday evenings, we'll be considering this chapter. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 9. Verse number 9, and we'll just read through the beginning of verse number 11. It reads this way. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Would you go with me to the Lord in prayer as we ask his grace this evening? Our gracious God, we are in desperate need of your help. Would you please guide our thoughts as we consider for these brief moments the teachings of your word on this truth? In Christ's name we pray, amen. The writer of the book of Hebrews is developing an argument here in chapter four that's in the same general vein as chapter 3. If you recall from several weeks ago, we looked in chapter 3 at the warnings of failing to persevere in the faith. And so the writer is preaching and teaching in this book with the goal that the faith of his audience would persevere. And in chapter 3, as an analogy and argument from Scripture, the preacher reminded the hearers of the rebellion of the people of Israel, and then the command in the Psalms that God's people in every generation are responsible to believe his promises. Now in chapter 4, the writer is going to continue his analogy to the rebellion of Israel, but as he does, he's going to introduce a point that we have not yet seen in this book. And it's a concept that we just heard in the reading of those couple of verses from chapter 4, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. However, in our study of this chapter, we're really going to miss it in understanding the writer's main point if we fail to understand the biblical concept of the Sabbath. So in this service, we're going to survey briefly the Bible's teachings on the Sabbath so that next week... We can understand those truths in chapter 4 and hear accurately what the writer has to say to us. Now, the truth is that many good Christians have studied this concept and come to different conclusions. But in studying this concept, I believe that together tonight, we can come to a good understanding of the Bible's total picture of the Sabbath. Think of a subject like chemistry or Spanish, you remember from high school. You don't just pick up in the middle to end of the book and expect to understand all the references to previous material without doing some kind of a review, or even better, starting at the very beginning and doing a careful study all the way through. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to review the textbook on this subject so that next week, we'll be able to understand the chapter that we find ourselves in in chapter number four. But then how do we know where to start? Where do we begin with this concept of the Sabbath? It's interesting because the book of Hebrews actually points us in the right direction. It gives us a starting point in Hebrews 4.4 where it says this, 
For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, quote, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's a clear reference to the book of Genesis, so let's go there. Let's go back to the beginning and see what it has to say about the Sabbath. This is the first point that I want us to understand from the scriptures this evening. God created the Sabbath as a holy day for special enjoyment of fellowship between himself and humanity. God created the Sabbath as a holy day for special enjoyment of fellowship between himself and humanity. If you would, let's look at the book of Genesis, chapter number 1, verses 26 to 31. So the last major paragraph in chapter 1 of Genesis. I'll have it here on the screen for us. It reads this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. On this final day of creation, we learn of God's highest creative work on this earth. He created man and woman to each reflect his own nature in a relationship with himself. Note that the writer of Genesis here holds off on giving the specific account of the creation of Adam from the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, the story of naming the animals, the story of creating Eve from the rib of Adam. One of the reasons that we only get a summary statement here at the beginning and only more details later on is because the writer wants to emphasize for us that both the man and the woman stand as equal yet complementary reflectors of God's image. God intended in the creation of man and woman for them both to equally reflect his image yet in different and complementary ways. Both men and women are equally valuable reflectors of God's image, but if the earth was only men, the image would be distorted. And likewise, if the earth was only populated by women, something significant would be lost in the reflection of God's image that he designed. Humanity was created for eternal enjoyment of a personal relationship with God and to reflect his image to the rest of creation as his authoritative stewards ruling over his creation, we see that in this passage of scripture, God gives the rule of the earth to the man and the woman. C.S. Lewis references this in the Chronicles of Narnia when he talks about the kings and queens of Narnia sitting on the thrones at Caer Paravel. 
in those series of books. And you remember that this is a land filled with talking animals, but the rule of that fantasy world could only be held by, and he specifically says so that we don't miss it, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. It's a reflection of the book of Genesis, and God created the earth and humanity Not because God needed anything, but because God sovereignly willed to bring himself glory by, number one, reflecting his character in creation, and number two, by making image bearers, Adam and Eve, who would love him and serve him in joyful fellowship. And so it's in this context that we move on to chapter two and read an eternally important passage at the beginning of Genesis two. So look with me now at Genesis two, and let's see what this has to say. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. Now the importance of this passage here at Genesis chapter 2 cannot be overstated. God could have made everything in an instant, but he chose to do it over six days. Likewise, God did not need a break from the things that he had been doing, but he chose to take a rest period for an entire day. Why? Why the emphasis on rest here at the end? What is it that he is resting from, and what is the purpose of this rest? And I want to highlight for us what I believe are three conclusions we can reach regarding God's rest on the seventh day. Number one, God rested from his creative acts. He had completed everything that he had intended, so the rest functions as a way to highlight the culmination of the story of God's sovereign creation. This in no way means that God was inactive or passive on the seventh day. In fact, we learn this in the Gospels when Jesus specifically says, my father is working even until now. God never stops in activity. He's always working. And we learn in the book of Colossians that all things are upheld by the word of his power. We learn that it's in him, in Jesus, that all things hold together and all things consist. For God to cease from all activity would be the dissolution instantly of the entire universe. And that doesn't happen. So what the rest is, is something other than pure inactivity. Rather, it's a stepping away from the work of creation because creation is done. It highlights the culmination, the completion of what God intended to do in his creative works. Number two, God rested for the enjoyment of his creation. In the same way that you and I take time to stand back and enjoy our work, whether that's as simple as when you finish building a Lego set with your son or daughter, or whether you're restoring a car and you finally have bolted down the last piece and it's polished and you stand back and admire it or take it for a ride, or baking a cake to take a picture of it before you cut the first slice and take a bite, or something even extravagant like admiring a a, a monument or a great skyscraper. You and I, we love to enjoy what we've made. And God has built us that way so that we would have a little reflection in us of the infinite joy and delight and pride that God rightly takes 
in his creative works. But instead of merely standing back and admiring inanimate objects as a distant sort of watchmaker or the way Bob Ross does for his paintings on canvas, I believe that God, on the seventh day, entered intimately and actively into a relationship with the man and the woman that he just made at the end of chapter 1. He created all things for his glory, which is seen primarily in the relationship between himself and his image bearers. He's just finished the mechanism so that now he may enjoy the means. The point of making image bearers at the end is so that he could be in a relationship with them. You build the car, then you drive it. You knit the hat, and then you wear it. You build the Lego set or paint the canvas, then you admire it. People delight in the act of creating, but nobody creates something which can never be finished, nor do people create something which cannot be admired for any reason or enjoyed for any purpose. So God rests from the creative act so that he may enjoy what he made. And the primary purpose for which he made you and for me is fellowship with the creator and the image bearer, two of them to be precise. Thirdly, God then sanctified or set apart the day of rest for his relationship with humanity in time. God sanctified this day of rest specifically so that the humans may devote themselves to the enjoyment of God apart from their typical responsibilities. This, of course, makes perfect sense, given what we've said above. God is an infinite, eternal spirit. God doesn't need a day, but we do. We are mortal, finite creatures. It's impossible for us to have a relationship outside of time. In fact, time is the most valuable contribution that any of us can make to a relationship But God stands outside that need and that dependence. But to have a relationship with image bearers who are locked in time, there must be a day. There must be time set aside for this. And so God, knowing this, gives a day to us for the kind of intimate fellowship with himself for which he created us. We need time with our creator to develop this relationship, and God graciously sanctifies a day for that purpose. The seventh day is not primarily because of God's needs. The seventh day is because of our needs, because of who we are and what our nature is. So that with God, we would be able to glorify him in creation in the awe-inspiring context of his created world. But even though God created everything for perfect reflection of his glory and as a stage on which to enjoy open fellowship with his creation, Adam and Eve rebelled against God's purpose and design by breaking his commandments and law. You know the story well. But let's think about how this will impact the relationship that has been set aside, especially in context of that one day for fellowship that God sanctified at the end of the week. There are a few consequences that we can understand from this. Number one, fellowship between God and man is broken. That seems obvious, but think about how this affects our uh, interaction with the world and with God. Humans would now come into the world in a state of sin and pain rather than joy and love. Creation, the nature all around us, will no longer willingly submit to humanity's rule. Survival on earth is no longer guaranteed. 
Nature is now aggressive towards mankind. The ground rebels against being cultivated. The animals fight and defend and fear mankind. They attack people. Even the woman's body rebels against the command to be fruitful and multiply, and now only in pain and great danger will children be born. The very marriage relationship which God instituted would have to overcome continual distortion of that two-sided coin reflection of the image of God in humanity. There's a second consequence, though, and that's this, that the human nature would then naturally rebel against the rhythm of rest one day in seven. Think about this. With survival no longer guaranteed and the sinful drive in the heart of man to accumulate idols and wealth and treasure, man would be tempted to work constantly with no thought of God or even the good of his own body. And then on the other extreme, on the other hand, some would so idolize rest that they would fail to be productive and creative image bearers. And they would sinfully live lives of laziness, also in rebellion against God's purposes. And so with these two major consequences in mind, we're going to move on to the next major section in the Bible that deals with the concept of the Sabbath. And that is the institution of Israel's Sabbath. And so our second main point that I want us to see, not merely that God has set aside a Sabbath day as holy for special enjoyment of fellowship with humanity, but that God gave Israel the Sabbath as a gift, as a sign, and as a time for worship. Now, how is the Sabbath a gift to Israel? Well, it's a gift because in the Sabbath... Israel was freed from the curse of the ground for one day. Say, so what do you mean by that? On the Sabbath day, God promised to provide for their needs over against the rebellion of the earth, as long as his people faithfully do all their work in six days. We see this account very clearly played out for us in Exodus 16 with the account of the manna. Do you remember all the instructions that God gave to them, how they were to daily gather their manna, and then on the sixth day there would be double the amount of manna so that on the seventh day they wouldn't have to worry about whether or not they would have enough to eat. And so in this way the Sabbath is a gift. Israel stops working for a day, but they don't all starve. Because God provides for their needs. When I was in driver's ed school, back in high school, working to get my license, I went on a a scheduled drive through a driving school that my parents had enrolled me in, and I went on a drive with a former state trooper who is now employed through this driver's ed program. And so we went on the scheduled drive, and we spent two or three hours in the car just driving all over the county. Um, just all over the place, and this is Clover, South Carolina, and there's a lot of back roads and South Carolina countryside. Uh, This driver had done this for quite a while, and he knew the best places to go and the best places to test me on different things. Um, But there was a point in the drive where he wanted me to see a particular house that he thought was really cool way out in the country. So he took me out to this backcountry highway, and at one point he leaned over toward me and he put his hand on the wheel and he said, I've got the wheel, and then he pointed out my driver's side window and said, look at that house over there. And the reason he did that is because he knew that if I, as a driver, just casually, based on my own interest and my own distracted nature, 
took my own hands off the wheel and looked over out the window, there's a good chance that we were both going to die. And so he very kindly reached over for me, took the wheel, told me that he had the wheel, and then pointed out the beauty of the house that he wanted me to see and you know, enjoy how cool it was the way he thought it was so cool. So I looked out, yeah, that's a really cool house. This is a really weird thing. I can't see what's going on out here, but he says he's got the wheel. Okay, sounds good. We come back, I take the wheel again, and it's good. That's what the Sabbath was like for Israel. It's a gift in that way, where God says, on this day, I'll provide for your needs. You don't need to worry about how you're going to put food on the table when you give yourself to worshiping me on this day, because I'm going to provide. That's how the Sabbath was a gift for Israel. It wasn't merely a gift, though. It was also a sign. It was a sign because it was a day to be reminded of their covenant relationship with God by redemption from Egypt. The weekly rest and worship set them apart from everybody else and was commanded to be a day where they gathered and thought of and considered and practiced devotion to God. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses recounts to Israel for the second time the Ten Commandments. It's the second giving of the law which is why it's called Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, we read this. This is in that account of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And he gives several commands there. Look at verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Notice very clearly that the Sabbath was actually commanded to be a weekly reminder and sign of their redemption and unique status as God's own special people. Each week as Israel observed the Sabbath, they were supposed to think about and remember in their gatherings that they had been saved by God from slavery. And isn't that just what we did this morning when we opened with the hymn, And Can It Be, and sang the stanza, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. But we finally see that it was also a time for a holy convocation. A time for a holy convocation. You see that um, as a time for worship. In Leviticus 23.3, we read this. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Here we learn that the Sabbath was a time to set aside work, not merely so that the Israelites wouldn't have to do work, but so that they would be free to then worship. That's what a holy convocation means. It means setting yourself apart for a special gathering in worship. And the rhythm of rest from daily employment for the purpose of special worship was the purpose of the Sabbath. We also see this in the original giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 
places the Sabbath command right between the commands that relate to one's duty to God and one's duty to fellow man. And it reads in this way, Exodus 28 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And again, all of the people who ought not to do work. In verse number 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice very clearly the reference to the creation account in the book of Genesis. We've already looked at it. This, in the Leviticus passage that sets the Sabbath aside for holy convocation, teaches us that Israel was not merely to enjoy the cessation of work and activity, but positively the activity of worshiping and enjoying their relationship with God in gathered communities just the way that God intended in the Garden of Eden when he originally sanctified the day. But we still know that the commands that were given to Israel were not enough to truly restore that Sabbath fellowship that they enjoyed before the fall. Even though they had all of these prohibitions and laws about the Sabbath and all of the prophets preaching about it, the Israelites continually broke the law of God and specifically the Sabbath command. It wasn't until they came back from exile did Israel begin regularly observing and keeping the Sabbath. However, at that point, their leaders began to develop traditions that made the gift of the Sabbath into a burden and turned its use in the worship of God to an exaltation of human will and self-discipline. That's what we call legalism. And it's into this scene that the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did not come to destroy the Sabbath, but to fulfill it. And so we learn that, three, Christ fulfills the Sabbath. And he does this in a couple of ways. He does this in his teaching and in his work. We're going to point out some highlights, but you can study this a little bit later. Matthew chapter number 12, verses 1 through 8, is the account of Jesus passing through the grain field with his disciples. And he makes several key statements that I want to just highlight for you, even though we don't have time to read this entire passage. Number one is that Christ claims the Sabbath is his. He specifically says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a stunning claim. Because it places Christ automatically as God and on the level of God. Because you remember how in the book of Genesis when we started that it was the Lord who set apart that day. It is the Lord's sanctified day. It's by his authority that one day in seven was set apart. And so for Christ to claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath, he is asserting his divinity and his authority to decide how to observe the Sabbath. The Pharisees don't get to dictate to God how the Sabbath ought to be observed. Jesus tells them how the Sabbath is to be observed. And so he also, along with claiming the Sabbath as his own, he reminds of the blessing of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is truly a gift. He points out in the book of Mark, in the same parallel passage, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees had turned the gift of God into something that was more oppressive than helpful. And so Jesus turns those tables back around to its original purpose. Jesus also, thirdly in his teaching, obligates deeds of mercy on the Sabbath. 
We see this hinted in Christ's statement in Matthew 12, the passage we just referenced. We didn't read it, but we referenced it. And Jesus specifically says in that context, you should have learned what this meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is also why Christ healed so many people on the Sabbath. Um, He wasn't just doing something lawful on the Sabbath when he healed people, but he was actually specifically claiming that he had a moral obligation to heal people on the Sabbath because of how merciful God is. We can see this repeatedly in those accounts because Jesus highlights on multiple occasions how merciful the religious leaders are when a donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, by a much greater principle, ought we not to show mercy to sons of the covenant on the Sabbath? And so by saying that, he actually requires good deeds to be done on the Sabbath as a reflection of God's image and nature. And isn't that totally consistent with what we've seen from the book of Genesis on? Not only does Christ fulfill the Sabbath in his teaching, but he also fulfills it in his work. Firstly, because his sacrifice on the cross inaugurates spiritual rest. In the accounts of the Last Supper, which take place on the Sabbath, by the way, we see the inauguration of the new covenant, which is the covenant by which God intends to restore the fellowship of original creation. You ask, what is the new covenant? The new covenant is the beginning of the end that looks back to the beginning. The new covenant is the relationship under which we will in eternity be restored to the paradise of God like Adam and Eve before the fall. And Christ inaugurates that new covenant in the sacrifice of his own body and blood. It's in the new covenant that we are made new in fellowship with God and with each other. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Colossians 1 also tells us that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But not only is the sacrifice of Christ the inauguration of spiritual rest, but Christ's rest is received by faith. This is what we see all over the New Testament, and it would take us an entire sermon just to sketch those passages out. However, our own passage in the book of Hebrews reminds us of this truth. Hebrews 4.3 says simply, we who have believed enter that rest. Friends, Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath because it is through our union with him that we finally have rest from our labor under the curse of sin. But we still need to understand how this affects the church. How should we as 21st century believers and a congregation here in Indiana understand this concept of spiritual rest and Sabbath? And this brings us to our fourth point, which is this. The church of believers has begun their spiritual Sabbath rest. And number one, this rest is entered into through our union with Christ. We've mentioned this just now, but we need to make this personal We read this in our scripture reading actually earlier this evening, where in the book of Matthew chapter 11, Christ specifically commands people to come to him by faith to receive rest. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Friends, have you truly come to Christ by faith? Have you found true rest for your soul yet? How is it with you and God? Beware of the danger of coming to Christ for something that you think you can get from him in this world. Maybe a social network of friends, standing in the community, or maybe even something as simple as being able to weekly salve your conscience through church attendance or acts of service. Whatever it is, friends, the rest that Christ offers is the rest of salvation from sin by being reconciled to God. That's the rest that you need. Come to Christ in faith, trusting his sacrifice for you. Come and know the rest that he provides. This rest is also, though, reflected in the weekly gathered worship of the church. Friends, it's a big issue in the study of Scripture, but in brief, the church now gathers on Sunday instead of Saturday. Very early on in the church, both in church history and in the Scriptures, Sunday became the day for the gathering of the church, and it was called by the apostles and believers the Lord's Day. Now, this is not Israel's Sabbath, because Israel's Sabbath was a gathering to remember physical redemption from Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we meet on the first day of the week because we celebrate a greater redemption from our sins. In this day, we enjoy fellowship with God and each other through Jesus Christ. Think of the passage that we read this morning in our scripture reading in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, where it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The relationship that we have been brought into with God and to each other is reflected in our worship. And this is why in the next chapter the writer says, For here we have no lasting city, but we are still seeking the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our weekly gathered worship as a local congregation is a reflection of that fellowship that God enjoyed with his creation on the seventh day of the first week. And it is a reflection of all that is coming. And that leads us to our final point in just a moment. Because we need to realize that the Lord's Day is a gift from God to cease from labor so that we can gather in worship of the risen Christ. We still need the rhythm of rest for worship because the final day of consummation has not yet come. Believer, you can trust God to provide for your needs on the Lord's Day so that you can set aside your typical labors and give that time to him. This is a very gracious gift from God that he will not let you go hungry as you set aside one day in seven to enjoy your relationship with God and with your fellow brothers and sisters here at this church. But we need to be honest. How often is the Lord's Day for us nothing more than a morning exercise 
before the real activities that are the true delight of our hearts. Friends, it's not wrong to enjoy the recreation of football or shopping or making money on the Lord's Day. But it is wrong when the greatest delight of your heart on the Lord's Day is when you finally make it to your couch and you turn on the TV and you hit that channel. The Lord's Day is a gracious time when God's people give their attention and their focus to fellowship with God through gathered worship and fellowship with each other around the word. Why not have a time of family worship and devotions over their Sunday lunch? Why not invite fellow believers over on that fourth Sunday evening when there's no evening service for a time of prayer and encouragement? Now, rest from our labor is important, but the order of priority is also important. God gives us rest so that we can give ourselves undistractedly to worship. Worship first, physical rest second. Spiritual family first on the Lord's day. Earthly family second on the Lord's day. Please don't decide that Sunday is a good day to skip church so that you can go to the park for a picnic with your family. Family picnics are a good thing, but not when it makes the Lord's Day someone else's day. Now, I want you to hear me clearly and correctly. You ought to eat and drink and enjoy family and friends and a nap on Sunday. You ought to enjoy the good gifts of God on Sunday with a thankful heart. The New Testament is very silent on the specific application of the Lord's Day. However, it does train our consciences to understand that we ought to enjoy the good gifts of God um, before his face. This is what we've learned in the book of Ecclesiastes from Pastor Joe, that for all these things God will surely call you into account. So enjoy them, but know that there is a day of accounting coming. God will call you into account for how you spent the Lord's day on a weekly basis. Now, I know that many of you work in or have worked in professions that may require you to work on Sunday. And I think especially of those professions of public service like the medical community or the police force or things like that. And your service on Sundays is a good thing for society. It provides a service of mercy to humanity that reflects the character of God. And we've already seen that those kinds of works are in fact obligated by the Lord Jesus. You won't be held to account in judgment for saving lives on the Lord's day. But what you ought to do is pray for the day when you can regularly gather with your church family again, when the Lord would give you that opportunity, because that would be the greatest longing of your heart as a believer, to experience that weekly rhythm of rest for worship. When that time comes and you're given the opportunity to move your shift to a day other than Sunday, take it. Don't get so comfortable missing church that your heart becomes callous to the kind of appetite that worship cultivates in you for eternity. Our final point here is that the church's gathered worship points forward to the rest of eternal glory. In the book of Revelation, John finishes in 21, 1 through 4 in this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth 
passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, when we sing the praises of God together on a Sunday morning and we fellowship with God in prayer, we hear from his word, we partake of the Lord's table together, what are we doing? We're proclaiming his death till he comes. We're saying that we have begun a Sabbath rest, but we've not yet fully entered into it. That there's a final consummation of this rest that is coming and to which we look forward to. And so in joyful anticipation of that day, we gather on a weekly basis for worship. Do you realize that every moment in eternity is an eternal Sabbath with the Lord your God? Where we are eternally in perfect, open fellowship with our Creator in the context of a beautiful, new, pristine creation untouched by sin and the curse. Our fellowship with God will be face-to-face, unhindered by our flesh. Our relationships with each other will no longer contain episodes of strife, jealousy, or hurt. Rather, they will always be faithful, just, pure, creative, and productive. When we gather for worship, brothers and sisters, make sure that you enjoy the fellowship with God and with each other. And let it give you a growing excitement for glory. Do your hearts long for the full Sabbath rest of the people of God? It's fully provided by Jesus Christ and it's received by faith, but we've not quite yet arrived. We're journeying on toward it now and we're preparing our hearts for it by regular gathered worship with God's covenant people. In closing, I'm going to read a quote from a Puritan pastor named Richard Align who describes it this way in his book. He writes this, Faith describes a better country. It sees into the invisible world. Finding it to be a good land, there the faithful servant of Christ resolves to take up his rest. He says, The Lord is my portion forever. In him is my salvation. If I can but make my way through this weary land and at last enter into the heavenly rest, if I can but attain to the resurrection of the just and be with Christ, that is all my desire and design. Meet a believer where you will and ask him, where are you bound? He can say, oh, for the heavenly country. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. What are you running for? The incorruptible crown. Ask him again, will nothing less content you? Look about through all the earth. Can you find nothing worthy of your esteem? Are silver, gold, houses, lands, and pleasures nothing to you? May not these satisfy you? No, no, he will say, these do not make my heaven. There's no rest here for the sole of my foot. My house and my home is above. My hope and my treasure is above. And my soul is above and cannot be content to grovel in the dust. Ask him yet again, but how will you ever enter into that good land? There are difficulties and dangers in the way. 
you have a wilderness to go through, a Red Sea and a Jordan to pass over. There are lions in your way. You may be a prey to your enemies, or at least you may wander in the wilderness, lose your way, and never come into your rest at last. Well, he can answer, I must venture. I'm resolved for heaven. However difficult or dangerous the way may prove, I will venture all here, heaven or nothing. This heart can never be at rest till I be with Christ where he is. Brothers and sisters, that is the rest of the people of God. We've entered into it now by faith. It's reflected in our weekly gatherings. Friends, would you give to the Lord the worship that he deserves and work to prepare your heart for that rest that he's promised to us? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for the allowance of studying the scriptures this evening. Would you cause us to come to a right understanding of your word? I pray that this would be helpful for us as next week we look at Hebrews chapter 4 and consider what the writer has to say in regards to application of this principle of the Sabbath. And we pray this in Christ's name.